I'm going to bring you a message tonight that's called When God Says No More. And this is actually the final message of a series that you've already forgotten about. I was preaching on uh, vision, and this was to have been the final message a couple of weeks ago. It seems like everything right now is about vision, but this was going to be uh, kind of an odd ending to that series, and it's a vision of when God says that's enough. And I am so intentional about magnifying the grace of God. I mean, that is just, I, I, I despise legalism. I hate guilt and shame. I think those are uh, works of the enemy where he tries to get people to live under a yoke of constant guilt and shame. That is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict you, and being convicted of a sin involves a measure of guilt, but he doesn't want to leave you that way. The enemy does. The enemy wants to condemn you and shame you and guilt you. And so I, I try to resist that by preaching grace and living grace and operating grace and giving grace to other people. There's a danger when you talk about grace a lot. It can leave people who maybe aren't students of the scriptures with the idea that God is just some passive chuckling grandfather who's in a wicker rocker on the edge of front porch of heaven, just kind of chuckling at his little mischievous kids. And that is a, a poor caricature of God. God is holy. God is just. God is sovereign. And God does have moments, as we see in the scripture, where he says, enough is enough. And what's amazing is usually when he did that, nobody thought he was going to. Usually when God drew a line in the sand and said, you've crossed it, I'm done giving you the measure of grace that I've been giving you, most of the time it caught the people off guard. And I think as we are living in a very chaotic age, it is chaos right now. Um, I don't know if it's me or if it's you or if we're both seeing accurately, but it does seem to me that sin seems to be exponentially compounding upon itself in our culture. Um, I, I, I know that you know there's been wicked ages before, you've got the Roman Empire, you've got a time period that I'm gonna address here in a few minutes, but there's just something about the atmosphere right now in our country and globally that speaks to me of nothing less than clear indicators that we are at the end of the age. Now, how long that'll last, I don't know. But I do know this, there are times when God says no more. And so I would say this evening is going to end probably on a very encouraging note, but before we get there, we'll have to go through a little bit of discomfort, and I hope you'll go there with me. And there'll be room for personal repentance, but if no personal repentance is warranted tonight, um, I hope that you'll look at the world around you and you'll just say, I see what's coming. I see that the Lord is going to eventually say to the United States of America and to all the other nations, he's going to say no more, no more. And so it's a sobering message tonight, and it's going to involve five passages of Scripture. They're going to be up on your screen. I'm not even going to open with uh, uh, my normal opening passage tonight. I'm going to get straight into the text in the book of Genesis and chapter number six. And of course, the book of Genesis chapter number six is going to take us back uh, briefly to the antediluvian period, and then we're going to go right into the flood. And this is where I want to begin, where God said to the inhabitants of earth, no more rebellion. There was a generation that is living in Genesis chapter 6, and it concerns obviously the flood, and God said to the human race, no more. 
No more rebellion. So look at, just look at the Bible tonight. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter six and verse number five. It says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart, that's man's heart, was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, friends, this is going back, obviously, to a time period. It's just amazing. When God created the earth and God created mankind, you hear this repetition, it was good, it was good, it was good. And so the book of Genesis opens up before the fall and everything's good. Everything's great. It's glorious. It's paradise. It's pristine. It's unmarred by sin. And then of course, Adam and Eve rebelled. And then of course, you see the first set of brothers on the face of the earth and one murders the other. And then you've got the scattering and you've got these nations. You just see that uh, people as they grew, they did not grow in a closeness to God. But eventually as time passed, you've got the characterization of the entire human race being in such depravity. This is not people trinketing with sin or tinkering around with sin. This is the creator looking at the inhabitants of earth, and this is how he describes them. And remember, these are the words of scripture, that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil, and it was every day, and it was continually you know, my mind automatically says, weren't, weren't there some that were good? I'd love to believe that there were some that were good, but the scripture doesn't say that. I mean, logic might tell us that, well, surely there were some that were good. And yet when we find out that the flood came, we find out that there were eight that listened to God and believed, eight people out of the human race. And the Bible says that as the Lord, and remember as Noah was building the ark for over a century, he was preaching righteousness. He was preaching repentance and he was mocked and he was scoffed and he was vexed in heart, but he was faithful to proclaim the, 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 the word of the Lord to his generation and they laughed him to scorn. And the Bible indicates that mankind, men and women, in their bodies were working evil, in their minds were thinking evil, and in their hearts they were devising evil and it wasn't periodic, it wasn't spontaneous, it was constant. Now, that's not going to jive with popular psychology today. And how many of us have heard that, well, people are basically good at heart. Let me just tell you at the risk of alienating some of us, that the Bible never says that. The Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked, that we're de they're deceitful above all things. And it is only the uh, re uh, reforming, the uh, regenerating grace of God by the power of Holy, Holy Spirit coming in and transforming us that we're ever delivered from that through the blood of Jesus and through salvation. But at this time, God was calling people to repent. None of them wanted to. And the Bible is very clear. The Bible and its it's difficult for us because it's not like God didn't know this was going to happen. None of this caught God off guard. But in order for us to understand the complexities of what the Lord was seeing and even what the Lord was feeling, the Bible says that God was grieved in his heart. As Moses was writing the book of Genesis, centuries after this happened, God communicates to and through Moses to place within the holy writ that God's heart was greatly grieved. 
that he looked upon his, the people that he had created. He looked upon mankind. What he had made good, man had marred and, and, and brought curse upon. And the Bible said that God's heart was so deeply grieved that he said, I'm going to wipe them out. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't like that. Something about our flesh, something about our generation, something within us kind of recoils of that. It seems extreme. It seems uh, way over the top. It seems almost harsh, but we need to remember that God is a holy God and his eyes are too pure to look upon sin. And when he looked upon the earth, it wasn't people dabbling in sin. It was people that were operating in such depravity that repentance was therefore impossible for them. And God saved eight people who chose to to believe that he was a God of his word. And therefore, I'm going to make application today. Though the scriptures show us, and though God promised that he would never send a global flood again, when we turn to the back of our Bibles, we find out that there is an appointed time where God will once again bring great wrath and destruction upon mankind and upon the creation, not by water, but by what? By fire and that the elements will melt with a fervent heat. And we don't know all that that involves, but we do know that God is going to go through an uncreation process. Well, this earth will be in some way destroyed, and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth created. The Bible says that not only will the inhabitants of earth be destroyed at that time, but also all of the works therein will be burned up. And so the end of the age will not have anything impure in it because God is going to destroy what man has ruined. Now, lest we live here looking for, leave here tonight looking, you know, just to off ourselves because this is so depressing, please remember that the verses that follow the ones I just read from Genesis open up and they said, but Noah found favor with God. So while God was destroying the earth and God was giving over a century of time for people to repent, and though people rejected God, there was a remnant. There was a handful, Noah, his sons, his wife, his uh, son's wives, and those people believed God. But isn't that amazing that of all the human race living at that time, only eight people? What, what, what do we do with such a thing? Well, I, I will say this. There is coming a day, mark this down. I think you know this. I don't think this is a stretch for any of us. There is coming a day where God is going to look once again on planet earth and he's going to say, no more. You know, you and I can get bent out of shape over the things that are going on in our nation right now. And I mean, it just seems like everything has spikes on it right now. Everything is uh, painful and just, it, it looks awful because of the morality and the chaos and the division. But I want you to know that that is not the end of the story. It may be an ugly chapter in the story, but it's not the end of the story because God is unwilling to let things remain like that. Just as he was in the days of Noah, Jesus said at the end of the age, those same kind of uh, tenets of the, of the age will come to pass and God will bring judgment and those who believe will be rescued out of it and those who do not believe will suffer within it. So God says at some point in the past there with Noah and some point in the future, no more rebellion. So let's go further because that's a little big. That's hard for us to digest a little challenging for us to swallow. So let's bring it down for the next couple of points to an individual level. And let's go to a man that probably we, we don't talk about often enough, uh, a man named Belshazzar. He is a Babylonian king. 
He is an individual that lived in the days of Daniel, and I'm going to read out of Daniel chapter 5, two different passages. And please remember, God's people had been brought into captivity. Belshazzar was now the king of Babylon. He was a a co-regent with his father, Nabonidus, who was in a different part of the territory, but he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 5, look at what uh, Belshazzar does. In in verse, um, verse number 2, I believe, maybe verse number one, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, so he's throwing a big party, he commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem to be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Now, just pause for a moment. It was basically a royal keg party. They were getting drunk and they were doing it out of um, intentional desecration of the vessels that used to be in the temple. The temple vessels had been taken captive along with the people of Israel. And so Belshazzar says, hey, bring those artifacts that used to be in the Jews' temple and let's pour our booze in them and let's get drunk out of those artifacts. You got to remember, those artifacts belong to the Lord. The Lord talked about what artifacts ought to be made. These were the vessels of the temple and God had given specific instructions about how they were to be made. And here we are with Belshazzar, a pagan king saying, nah, we're just going to pour our booze in there and we're going to get drunk. It's intentionally desecrating the God of the Jews. So back to the text. If you'll throw that verse back up on the screen or those verses, it says, they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods, little g, of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now watch this. This is supernatural. Verse five, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Okay, that's Daniel chapter five, verses two through six. We'll get to some other verses in Daniel five in a moment. So I've already painted the scene for you. It's a pagan party. It's full of royalty. The king is there in all of his glory. He is ruling and reigning and feeling very peaceful. By the way, outside the very thick city walls is the army of the Medes and the Persians. And they are surrounding the city at that time. But Belshazzar is like, they're not going to get through our walls. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show everybody I'm not worried about it. Our gods will protect us. Let's get drunk. And so as they're doing this and as they're drinking out of the the artifacts, the uh, vessels, that's the better word, of the Lord's temple, they're doing so and they're praising these false gods. And our God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews says, that's enough, no more. And out of nowhere, it's a kind of an eerie scene. We're not given all the details, so some of it's left to imagination. There is a, a hand that appears and it begins to write on the wall. By the way, you know that phrase, the handwriting on the wall? You've heard that? That's exactly where it comes from. That, that phrase originates from Daniel chapter 5. Oh, we see the handwriting on the wall. That phrase is now used to say, yeah, we saw the bad thing coming before it got there. The handwriting's on the wall. It sources itself out of Daniel chapter number 5. And now, and so Belshazzar, the mighty, now drunken king in front of all of his people, sees this ghastly hand writing on the wall. And the Bible says it had a physical impact on him, that his knees got weak, his color, the blood drained out of his face. He knew that he was in some kind of moment 
that was bigger than he was. What he didn't know is that was going to be his last night on earth. Watch, go with me into the next set of verses. They'll be up on your screen. Daniel 5, 22 through 28. Daniel has now been brought in to explain what's going on to Belshazzar. And here is his testimony. And you, his son, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand, that was, uh, the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Okay. Daniel is part of that remnant in Babylon that is serving God. Daniel had stood up to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel had been promoted in the land. Daniel was a man known as a seer. He is a prophet. He's a visionary. And the superstitious people of the land, though they didn't reverence Daniel's God, they did see Daniel, Daniel's God as one among many. And so Daniel is brought in. Daniel wasn't even part of the scene, but God supernaturally spoke and gave a prophetic word to Daniel. Daniel says, here's what was written and here's what it means. And it was really bad news for Belshazzar because this is what God said. Belshazzar, you had the example of your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, who by the way, repented. You remember when Belsh- uh, excuse me, when Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God and he became like a cow and he ate in the field and he didn't cut his hair, or his fingernails for like seven years. And he lost his mind and went insane for a time. And then he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he came to his senses and he repented before the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar had repented at that time before God. Belshazzar wouldn't. And Daniel is saying, you didn't learn from your grandfather. And because you didn't learn from your grandfather, you need to know that your kingdom is coming to an end right now. The Medes and the Persians are going to take the kingdom of Babylon and they're going to divide it among themselves. I didn't have time to read further in the chapter, but if you want to read later in Daniel 5 and into Daniel 6, you're going to find out that Belshazzar died that night. He was killed that night. The Medes and the Persians came in, and that was the end of the Babylonian empire. It's pretty powerful. When God is done with somebody, he's done. And friends, I want to tell you again, God is a God of grace. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of compassion. But there is coming a day where the benefits of his gracious, merciful, compassionate nature will no longer be accessible to the human race. It doesn't mean that God ceases to be merciful, compassionate, and kind. It simply means this. We cut ourselves off from those things when we choose not to believe and uh, operate with him according to his own terms. And he will give us grace and he will give us mercy. But when our pride so hardens our hearts, God will reach the point with individuals like Belshazzar, individuals in our day where God says, I am done it is no more. It's a pretty scary thought, right? I, I, I'll worm in a quick word of testimony here. 
And I, I can't prove this. I really can't. So feel free to disagree with me. I'm just going to tell you what I believe. I was saved on August 4th of 1994. Many of you would know I grew up in church. I walked away at the age of 14. I entered into a life of overt rebellion and anger, hostility towards everybody. And all during that time, I thought I was a Christian because I had prayed a prayer as a child. I had gotten baptized, and I just thought that was good enough. But I lived in open rebellion. And there were times where God would send witnesses into my life calling me to repentance, and I just didn't really want to have anything to do with it. I was having in my opinion, enough of a good time where I didn't, want to, I didn't want to deal with God. I didn't want to stop being the Lord of my own life. But God kept sending witnesses into my life. And the primary one was my boss, Scott Johnson. And Scott shared with me for two years as we worked together 13 hours a day, three days a week. I mean, you talk about God's mercy. He put me with a soul winner for two years, sowing the gospel into my life. And I just kept telling the guy I was fine. I was fine. I don't need that. I don't need that. Yeah, I know I live like a hellion, but I'm I'm sure that Jesus is going to let me in. Me and him have an understanding, blah, blah, blah. After a weekend, five days of debauchery down in uh, Florida, I came home. I was out of money. I was out of booze. I was out of drugs. And it was just me, my misery, and my solitude. And on the day where God saved me, I would love to say that there was this moment of nobility in my heart where I recognized the supreme value of Jesus Christ and just wanted to run to him and and, and just throw myself at his feet because he was so uh, worthy of my worship. But I'd be lying if I told you that. This is what really facilitated my repentance. In some moment of the deep work of the Holy Spirit, I became convinced over a period of a few hours that if I did not surrender to God, that that would be my last chance. There was something inherent within me that said, I don't think he's going to give me another day. And I'm just going to confess to you, I've heard preachers get up in a moment of, you know, passionate pulpit moment, and they say, well, bless God, if you just got saved because you wanted fire insurance, then I question your salvation. I'm going to tell you, I got saved that day because the greatest felt need was I was afraid I would go to hell if I waited one more day. And so I would love to tell you it's because Jesus was so awesome and I just couldn't resist giving myself to him. Wasn't that at all. I knew he was holy. I knew he was judge. And I sensed in my heart if I waited another day, I would be damned. And thankfully, the Lord was compassionate and merciful. So Jeff, can you prove that? No, but you can ask the Lord if it's true when you get to heaven. <laughs> because I am convinced in my own heart that that was my time and I wouldn't have been able to uh, repent any day after that. Belshazzar says, uh, Daniel said to Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you don't have a tomorrow. And he didn't. God said to Belshazzar, no more pride. Pride is the source of destruction. Wherever pride is operative and not remedied, pride will kill. It kills relationships. It kills ministries. It kills the inward joy of our hearts. It kills our liberty in Jesus. It kills our our desire to serve other people. Pride makes you the center of, uh, uh, of which everything else must orbit. And Belshazzar wouldn't repent of his, and God did not give him another day. 
I told you this was rough to start with, but let's go to one more because I don't want to look at a pagan and get all my lessons because I'm not a pagan. You're not a pagan. We're, we're not reprobates, you know, praising false gods. We're sitting in a Bible study on a Wednesday night and, and we're trying to grow closer to the Lord. Doesn't mean we don't wrestle with pride, but it just means Belshazzar is not quite as easy to identify with as the next guy. The next guy is King David. And this is where God is going to say, no more hypocrisy. No more hypocrisy. Uh, the Greek word for hypocrisy that's most often used is a word hypokritos, and it literally means one who wears a mask. And in ancient Greco culture, the actors would often have to play more than one part. And so an actor that was playing multiple parts would put on this mask when he's playing this character. And then when his other character comes on, he put on this mask. So he had two masks in his hands. He was known as the hypokritos. And that's the word from which we get hypocrite. Hypocrites meaning uh, you, you wear a mask. You're not as you seem. You're not consistent. And so when we're looking at David, the man after God's heart, not a man who was defamed, not a man who is denounced, but a man who is actually revered in scripture. But you know about this time period in David's life where he was living for at least a year at least nine months, probably closer to a year, living in open hypocrisy, living in denial, living a lie as the king of Israel, as the representative of God to the people, at least in the uh, majestic role. And he was living in the face of people that knew what was going on, but David refused to repent. He was living a double life. Um, before I even read the verses, I'll just say this. Be careful about throwing stones at David. If you've walked with the Lord long enough, chances are there may have been a short season, I hope it was short, in your life where you weren't really living out your identity. You were living in some sense of falsehood. It happens more often than we would like to admit, but it doesn't have to happen. And when God exposes our hypocrisy, it is an act of mercy and invitation to be restored to him. Please remember, the greatest thing that can happen to a Christian who is living in hypocrisy is for that Christian to repent before God privately, making it right with God, and hopefully that's as far as it needs to go. But if that Christian won't repent of her or his hypocrisy, the second greatest thing that can happen is what happened to David, that that person can be exposed. So let's look at the text. It's all too familiar. When God says no more hypocrisy, uh, hypocrisy in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the Bible says this, the Lord sent Nathan, he's the prophet, to David. Nathan came unto David and said to him, and he, Nathan's going to speak a parable here, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled uh, against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives... The man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you so much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Verse 10, now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you've despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. That is a scary scene in the Bible. This is a believer. This is a person in covenant. This was a guy who loved the Lord. He was a worship leader. He was a military leader. He was a, he, he proclaimed the truth of God's word. Uh, listen, if I, I don't know the exact number of verses, but if I'm not mistaken, it's either between David or Moses, the one who has the most inspired writings in scripture. Paul wrote most in the New Testament. David wrote all of those Psalms. So David is not some, you know, on the fringe reprobate. But David got off track. If you're not familiar with what Nathan is referencing here, and probably most of you are, but David had everything. And at a time where he could have been out on the battlefield winning wars for the Lord, he he pulled back, he stayed home. The lust of the eyes got him when he looked off of his rooftop and he saw, or looked off his balcony and saw Bathsheba, uh, the wife of another man bathing. He called her to his palace He had sexual intimacy with her. He impregnated her on that first occasion of their intimacy. And in order to cover his tracks, he did a little finagling. None of his plans were working. And so he sent her husband, who was a valiant soldier in David's army, to go to the front lines of the battle where David knew that he would be killed, and he was killed. So Uriah was killed. David then continued in this sin of hypocrisy and deceit. And he immediately brings Bathsheba into his home, that's Uriah's wife, and pretends like, boom, she, she, listen, they could do the math. There was some woman in that kingdom that was saying, now, wait a minute, their wedding date was in February and that baby was born in whatever, you know, July or, or November. And so David was unwilling to admit what would have been clear to most anybody in the kingdom, that he had impregnated Bathsheba and David's army officers knew that David had intentionally sent her husband to the front line. And David lived this way in deceit, duplicity, hypocrisy for the entire nine months of the pregnancy. He had to, by the way, he wrote a couple of Psalms during that period and he was miserable. Living as a hypocritical Christian, that's worse than living as a lost person. A lost person's not really in conflict because they're just having fun in their flesh. They're doing whatever they want. There's no inner conflict in a person that doesn't know the Lord. But a Christian who is, is, is not walking in consecration and adoration and obedience to the Lord, that individual is deeply confl- uh, conflicted, and David was too. And of course, Nathan comes to him and saying, and he says, in essence, hey, David, O king, you took Uriah's little lamb when you had a whole flock of women that were justifiably yours, you took this poor man's one wife and David repented. So important here. God bless, by the way, a prophet that'll get in a king's face. You know, we need some of that. Um, Yeah, I'm not even gonna go there, but I'm gonna tell you in our politically correct, I said I wasn't gonna go there and then I just went there. In our politically correct culture, I mean, we are now kind of, aghast 
when, when somebody will confront us because we live in the age of, don't you tell me what's wrong. Uh, you don't have any right to say anything about me or my life. Nathan, at his own risk, said to David the king, you're busted. God, in his mercy and grace, had given David probably up to a year to repent. The baby had already been born, by the way. And so after the birth of the, the child, Nathan waited, and then he comes to David, and he brings this, this moment of conviction, the opportunity to David, and David repents fully. And David paid the price, by the way. God forgave the sin, but God did not obligate himself to undo the natural course of, of uh, consequence. It's real important that I pause here for a minute. I want to tell you something. Just because we have to deal with the consequences of our sin or our failures does not mean that God is in an active state of punishing us. I, I confessed to you earlier before I came to Christ, I lived a jacked up life. I mean, my life was so messed up. Massive damage to relationships. I was estranged from my parents. I was financially just in debt and default, just so messed up. And when I repented, I realized I'm going to do my part to right the wrongs that I had done. But I'll be honest with you. Some people were eager to forgive. A lot of them weren't. You can't blame them. I can't just say, well, hey, look, I know I did you wrong for five years, but I've repented before God and you just need to take me at my word. Sometimes we have to live out the consequences of our sin, but I want to be very careful here. That doesn't mean God is actively punishing you. It just means that there are consequences to our action and David's consequences were that his family would be really messed up from that point forward. And by the way, the, the, the baby died. That was part of it also. The beauty in all of this is that the best thing that could have happened to David in his hypocrisy was for God to expose him and challenge him. Um, the nature of living in, in some hidden sin is that you live in fear. You, you have to protect your sin. You have to protect that area of your life where you are being uh, double-minded, where you are wearing the mask and you're moving them back and forth depending on who you're with or, or what's going on. And when we don't repent, let me tell you, it is an act of mercy for God to come to the Christian and say, no more. I'm not going to let you do this anymore. Is it embarrassing when people get exposed for their sin? Of course it is. Does it do damage to the testimony of the church? It really does. But God is so, God's not worried, by the way, about his name in the end. God's name will be vindicated. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God's not worrying, oh no, if I, if I expose this Christian, you know, maybe I won't be glorified. God's got that taken care of. But he so loves us that he will fight against us in our hiddenness or duplicity, and it doesn't have to be sexual or moral. Listen, the sin of apathy is the most tolerated sin in the body of Christ. I mean, you know, people that want to come in on Sundays and praise the Lord and everything, and then they just don't live for the Lord any other moments of the week. And God just comes against that. And if we won't repent, he may intensify the situation to bring about a moment of repentance. And please know this, it's always in love and it's always in grace. Is it in discipline? Yes, but God will scourge every son or daughter whom he loves. It's an indication of his love. Those that are without chastisement are illegitimate. They're not true children of God. People that can sin and there's no chastisement, the reason why is God doesn't spank those kids that aren't his. So when, when, when we can't enjoy our sin anymore, thank God for it. 
When, when you've got a sensitive conscience, when you, fa- when you fail the Lord, I'm going to say this. I hope you maintain a sensitive conscience, but I hope that sensitive conscience brings you to a place of repentance. And when you truly repent before the Lord, don't live under condemnation. See, the Lord wants to allow you to experience enough guilt to where you'll come to him for mercy. But then when you come to him in repentance for mercy, he's really done with it. He is done with the sin. He's not going to hold you on probation. He's not going to dangle it out over your head. He's not going to say one more time and, you know, I'm done with you. That's not the way he operates. The devil wants you to feel guilty. Uh, he wants you to feel great when you're approaching the sin. He wants you to feel cut in half as soon as you commit it. And then he wants you to feel weighed down with shame and guilt forever after you commit it. Sin never looks better than the second right before you commit it. And then when you commit it, the devil's saying, you horrible Christian. You are a God-dishonoring, awful, intolerable, insufferable, hypocritas, wearing the mask, and he wants to laden you with all of the guilt. And what the Lord does is he lets that same moment of guilt bring about a moment of repentance. And when you repent, the blood of Jesus is applied to that. Fellowship is restored. You don't got to hang your head for nine days. You don't have to wear sackcloth and ashes. You don't have to read five extra chapters in your Bible or find a Bible study that you're going to go to and make all these commitments. God's not interested in works. He he wants mercy more than sacrifice. And so as we see David, of course, David repented. Yes, he had very difficult days after that. But what what do we think of today when we think of David? We, We don't call him primarily the man who sinned with Bathsheba. We call him the man after God's own heart. And the reason why is this, David was never portrayed to be perfect. There was only one perfect man, the son of God, the son of man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. David just had a sensitive heart towards the Lord. And when David was brought to a point where he had to deal with his sin, he showed himself repentant before the Lord. We must be the same. So we get down to these last two passages and these are a little happier, okay? When God says no more to death, John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, very familiar words. When I say God says no more to death, I'm talking specifically about God the Son, Jesus Christ, when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then that question, do you believe this? Do you believe? believe this. These are tough words. You and I are bombarded by the the pull of the temporary and the physical. We live in a a material world. Um, I think that's a Madonna song, but we, we, we live in a world that we like to touch and taste and feel and buy and sell and give, and we're dominated by the physical. We're dominated by the temporal. And we have to diligently work on maintaining a Colossians 3 mindset that says, seek seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. But the imperative there is set your mind on things above, but we're earthbound. Our flesh gravitates towards the earth. So when we hear Jesus say, the one who lives and believes in me will never die, we think, wait a minute, I've been to a lot of funerals. You know, I've buried loved ones. You know, I, I, I've said goodbye more times than I can count. What do you, Jesus, I don't get it. Are you, are, you, are you taunting me? Are you playing me? What do you mean they'll never die? I, they're dead. They're gone. 
And the reason why we think that way is because we believe we are, when I say we, I'm talking about human race and even some Christians, we primarily view ourselves as physical creatures who kind of have a component of spiritual in us, but the, the reverse is true. You're actually a spiritual creation that is being lived out in a physical world. And so when Jesus is saying to you, you're never going to die, what he's not saying is that he's not telling you that the the shell won't die, but the shell isn't you. Listen, you existed in the heart of God before you were wrapped up in skin and DNA. You are an expression of the infinite desire of God. God wanted you to be here. God, ha- you, you are a thought, a purpose, a, I, I hesitate to use this word, but you're, you're, you're a dream from the heart of God. God wanted you to be. And before there was a body to give expression to that desire of God, you existed in the heart of God. You're primarily a spiritual creation. As a matter of fact, the body that you're in right now is not going to be the exact shell that you're in for all of eternity. You're going to get a brand new one that is fit to inhabit your spirit for all of eternity. That ought to encourage some of us. I tell people all the time, I want a six foot three tan body with six pack of abs and long flowing brown hair. And my wife says, if we're married in heaven, you're going to cut that hair. Amen. <laughs> but, but the point being is, 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 is this, that we're not primarily physical. And so when Jesus is saying, the one who lives and believes in me, though he does physically die, the reality is he can never actually die. That we are going to live forever. And now listen, the beauty of this, the only way that was possible is that God had to say no more to death. And yet death was the law that hung over every single specimen of the human race because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The, The price attached to our sin is that of death and separation from God. But Jesus, we all died in Adam. And so therefore Jesus comes to earth as the second Adam, our representative, and he dies in our place, yet not under condemnation for what he had done, but under condemnation for what we had done. And so Jesus took all of the death sentence that hangs over us, he took it upon himself, and he paid it in full. And therefore, there's nothing left to be paid concerning our sin. Jesus paid it all. He paid every ounce for every sin. And so if you are in Christ, all of it's paid for. If you are one who lives and believes in Jesus, the reason why death cannot be your eternity is because it was already placed upon Jesus and Jesus rose from it. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, in effect, death, you have nothing left. He says it to Satan, Satan, your great weapon was sin and death. I took the sin on myself. I took the death in myself. I took it to the fullest. And then I rose again. Satan, what do you have left? He's got nothing left. Jesus disarmed Satan's greatest weapon. And so therefore we are in Christ when we come into Christ, that death sentence that Jesus has already beaten, we are now in Christ. And so we participate in that victory. And that is why Jesus could say before the cross, the one who lives and believes in me will never die. That had, the cross hadn't even happened yet, but Jesus was as confident in that actuality before the cross. And then after the cross, we have of course the writings of the apostles, which expand the doctrine behind that reality. The book of Romans, the book of Ephesians teach us that Jesus Christ has fulfilled the death penalty. Friend, if you're here tonight, and and listen, I know you're here for at least one reason. You're curious about the things of God. 
I'm hoping that you're here because you're consecrated fully to God, that you're converted uh, by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But if you are here tonight and you're living with guilt or shame or, or condemnation, or any of those things because you're not quite sure if you're really fully forgiven yet. Maybe you've got a kind of a rocky past like a lot of us had, or maybe you've been not as close to the Lord as you used to be lately, and you're getting this shame and condemnation. I'm going to give you a grace statement here. There's no middle ground. You're either in Jesus or you're out of Jesus. If you're, pardon me, if you're in Jesus, you are fully pardoned, not partially, not mostly, not 90%. If you're in Jesus, that means you are alive in Jesus Christ and you will be alive in Jesus Christ as long as Jesus is alive. And by the way, he's alive forevermore. And so you will be alive in him forever and ever and ever. But if you are outside of Christ, it doesn't matter if you're a, 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 a religious person, a person, a moral person, a, a nice person, but if you're all of those things and yet you're not in Christ, then you are yet abiding under the wrath of God. You are yet in your sins. And so what Jesus does is Jesus calls you out of yourself and he brings you to that place of surrender and submission and that surrender and submission is acknowledging that he is the Lord of all. And there's a moment of faith where you recognize that he's done everything to bring you into right standing with God. And when you acknowledge that his death is paid for your sin, when you believe that his resurrection has secured your eternal life, you are brought into a oneness with him that the Bible calls justification, salvation, redemption. And because of that, you'll never die. For those of us that have lost loved ones, and all of us have, it's a beautiful thing for those loved ones that are in Christ to know that they are more alive than they ever were on earth. They are completely free and unfettered. We miss them terribly. And I'm not going to try to get so spiritual that I tell you you ought not miss them. We miss them terribly. But the beauty of it is if they're in Christ and we are in Christ, we will go to be with them and we will be alive with them in a way that we don't even understand down here. And then eventually we're going to live out this aliveness that Jesus gives us in a temple, in a vessel that is perfectly suited for it, where there's no sickness, there's no suffering, there's no mental illness, there's no uh, disfigurement, there's no dysfunction in the body. By the way, if you really want to get kind of biblical with it, you won't be subject to the laws of nature. The Bible says we're going to have a body fashioned just like Christ's glorious body. Do you remember in the resurrection, he just kind of walk into a room without opening the door? He just kind of appear and disappear. Uh, he ascended. He just, you know, just off the ground and into the heavens. I believe part of a, uh, let me just ask you this. Rabbit trail, here we go. Do you ever think about what you want to do in heaven? Do you ever think about that? I, Amy, Amy and I'll have this discussion every now and then. And uh, <laughs> again, we're very different. She says, I just want to kind of sleep by the, by the glassy sea. I just want to sleep by the glassy sea. She's finally going to get to rest a little bit, amen. And you know what I tell her? I was like, well, while you're sleeping, I want to fly. That's what I want to do. I just want to fly for a couple hundred thousand years. Just want to fly. Just want to fly. Well, I'm not going to run out of time. I mean, you're not. And, and the beauty of it is anything you desire in the eternal state, you will be able to do. And you know why? Because you'll only desire those things that are good. 
because you won't have anything within you. I mean, that ought to encourage you not. You're going to be free. The best thing about getting out of planet Earth when we go to meet Jesus is, I'm telling you, yeah, there's some people down here that you're sick of and you can't wait to be with Jesus, but you're going to be done with all the things you hate about you. I hate my sin. I hate my sin way worse than I hate anybody else's sin. I can't wait to where I don't have to deal with it anymore. And uh, yeah, flying will be great. But the most important thing, of course, about glory is that just to be with him. I, I, I do. I want to see the people I miss. But um, listen, if Jesus isn't in heaven, I don't want to go. <laughs> I want to be wherever he is. And so for all of us that have that hope, I want to encourage you with that. And then I'm going to give you the opposite side as we close. We'll end on a little bit of a heavy note here. And this needs to really sink down into our ears as we consider why have we been left here? Why aren't we in heaven yet? Why doesn't God save us and take us out of here? Because he's left with us a mission that we're actually, as far as earth is concerned, we're, we're actually, we're wanted in heaven, but we're not needed in heaven. We're not. We're needed on earth. There are no needs in heaven. God is the all-sufficient, self-sufficient creator of all. His glory is the theme of heaven. There's nothing lacking in heaven in the sense of unmet needs, but on earth, there's a lot of that. And so what God has done is he's left a lot of his children here that we may bring that message of adoption to all the other orphans on planet earth, that they may know that there's a glorious loving father in heaven who will receive them into his family. For those that reject, at the end of the age, there is this final no more, where God says, no more time. There's coming a deadline. You don't know when it is. I don't know when it is, but it is coming. It's prophesied. It's promised. There's coming a moment where all future moments cease. There's coming a stoppage, a hard stop. And so let's read about it in Revelation 20, and we'll wind up our time uh, tonight. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. John speaks here and he says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before his throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death, and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't know that there is a, um, a theme in Scripture more unpalatable to our generation 
than the concept of eternal damnation and suffering. Now, if you're, if you're 55 and above in the room, you were raised up on that kind of preaching and teaching. And you say, yeah, Jeff, and we need more of it. And I say, amen, you're absolutely right. But, but this generation has no appetite for it. I'm not even talking about generation of people in the pews. I'm talking about this generation of preachers and teachers. They just don't want to talk about it. But friends, let me tell you, as, 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 as true and concrete are the verses and the passages that express God's love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption and everlasting paradise. It's the same God that communicated for those that reject him. There is death, hell, burning, and torment. And it doesn't matter if 99.9% of the population says, that's not true. We don't want to hear it. It's true. So there's coming, I feel, I could be wrong, I feel it's so rapid. Obviously, we're not going to get into, you know, I got three minutes left. We're not going to get into eschatology and the timing of events. But out there in the future, there is a moment where Satan will amass the final rebellion against the Son of God and his throne in Jerusalem. And Satan will come with all of the deceived, innumerable, like the sands of the sea that there will be such hatred towards Jesus and Jerusalem that they will come with all of the fury, mass together, all of the world's armies, whoever that comprises, I don't even know. Go ahead and speculate all you want. You just know it is the worst of the worst who come up with one final flailing and failing attempt to do away with Jesus Christ the Lord. And the Bible is very clear. They're moving up with all of their battalions towards the throne of God and the holy city. And the Bible just simply says, God says, no more time. And he devours them in a blaze. That's all it says. They're gone. And then they stand before him, the resurrection of the unjust, and they will give an account to God. By the way, we're also told that before they are cast into the lake of fire, along with Satan, along with the beast, along with the false prophet, Before all of that takes place, they will bow the knee and they will confess with their tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then they will spend all of eternity regretting that they did it by force and not by faith.